welcome to the WeGo Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads with unique careers and the roads they travel to get there. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Max Russo, class of 2020. Today, we talk with Allison Place, class of 2012. Allison will tell us about her work as a developmental psychologist and adjunct professor and how her work has spanned the DuPage Children's Museum, autism, and helping frame bedside manner among practicing doctors. Joining us today is Allison Place from the class of 2012. Allison, what do you do? So I'm actually a child development specialist, uh, which means I can do a bunch of different things. But right now, I'm an adjunct faculty within a psychology department at Aurora University. And I'm contracted on within the Academic Support Center at the Erickson Institute in River North, Chicago. Wow. So let's start with, uh, how did you gravitate towards uh, psychology? I I was always interested in it. You know, I think it's a topic that so many students in high school find fascinating. Um, I never was able to take it at WeGo, though. So my first experience with psychology was at College of DuPage. And from then on, I, I pursued it. You know, I took as many courses in it as I could and really committed myself to, to the field. And here I am now. Do you remember what, like, which particular which particular part of psychology, obviously you study child psychology, but what was like the initial hook that kind of brought you into it and said, yeah, this is what I want to do? Absolutely. Uh, development. So I remember sitting in my general psychology class, which I get to teach now. So that's very mind blowing for me. Um, I remember sitting in that class and learning about development and specifically attachment theory, right? So how we form the basis for all of our future relationships, our attachment between ourselves and our primary caregiver, something that starts so young and something that goes on to be so foundational um, for who we are as, as people. And that really hooked me into wanting to learn more about development. And I, I chose to stick in that direction and it's, it's been incredible. So you, so you did your initial coursework at COD and uh, where did it take you from there? I did a short stint at NIU um, out in DeKalb, so Northern Illinois University. And then I decided that I wanted to be somewhere smaller. So I transferred to North Central College in Naperville and finish off my degree in psychology there. So when you're doing your coursework with psychology, one of the things that you get to do are kind of fun kind of experiments and, and, mm-hmm. and kind of see what follow through with that. Um, what were some of those uh, experiments that you uh, were able to be a part of? <laughs> oh my God, I, that is pretty much all I did throughout undergrad. Part of being in psychology is you have so many opportunities to pursue, right? I was very fortunate to be able to work on multiple teams with North Central College. So I worked on a research team that um, that worked together and collaborated with the DuPage Children's Museum. And we focused on program evaluation. So I went in as the researcher and I was able to do an evaluation of how visitors to the museum are utilizing the space. From there, I actually was able to handwrite pattern flowcharts of how people were moving within the moving within the exhibit 
from there, my final report was given to the museum staff and that um, allowed them to determine if they need to adjust the way the exhibits are structured. So that was a really fun one. Um, and then I did some program evaluation again with the Morton Arboretum, studying their youth programs and um, effectiveness. So I did that as well as an um, undergraduate research thesis project. So I designed my own study where I was able to analyze individual people's attitudes towards people with autism. So I had, I had participants. Um, I was able to design the whole study myself um, from their collected data and uh, finalize a nice report. And I think that was one of the best things that I did in undergrad was just pursue these opportunities, right? And just take advantage of the ones that were presented to me and to ask questions um, on how to become more involved. So I'm going to have two follow-up questions with that because I'm really interested with what you did at the um, the Children's Museum. Sure. So what became, what was more of the more interesting findings that you had about the flow and what were the types of kind of um, ways in which would alter someone's movement in the actual space? What were the, like the key indicators or triggers that would cause someone to do one thing versus another in the way that the architecture of the children's museum was laid out? Definitely. So my, I was very fortunate that my mentor, um, Dr. Nicole Rivera at North Central was able to give me a little bit of a head start of what to look for. And what we, what we're able to see is based on the attractiveness of the exhibit, um, what its primary function is will attract children of certain ages. So DuPage Children's Museum is very, very thorough about how they structure their exhibits and what age group they're appealing towards. So the exhibits that had light, had opportunities for movement, had opportunities to physically manipulate objects to create either new patterns of light or new patterns of sound were by far the most popular. And from there, we had to um, present those flow patterns to them and say, well, on one hand, we might benefit from having these towards the front because they're obviously so popular. But if we put them towards the back, we're going to entice visitors to come in. And when they're making their way back, they'll sort of ping pong along the way and stop at the other less visited exhibits. So really it was, we found the exhibits that had the most opportunity for manipulation, right? For the kids to be hands-on opportunities for parental engagement, which we also measured, um, tended to be the most successful. It, underneath that, just because it is a museum, do they, does a museum, What there's got to be a sweet spot, which is we want people to be there, but we also don't want them in there for five hours either, right? Like, so, cause they're, they have to bring more people in. So in part of your design of it, is there a kind of a way of like stay, but don't stay too long? Is it, was that yeah. ever part of the calculation as well? Absolutely. One thing that museums that cater towards children do have to consider is exactly what you pointed out. We want them to engage with the materials and to engage with the setting, but obviously not linger too long, right? Children are going to want to explore different areas and we want to get as many people through as we can. With that, the most popular exhibits that got the most foot traffic were the ones that had some sort of completion or mastery. So the children were enticed 
towards it because of the lights, because of the sounds, this ability to manipulate and create things on their own or with their, their primary caregiver, whoever was with them today. But they were able to master it. And it was fun for them. And from that, they're like, great, like that was really, that was really fun. Let's move on. So the most popular exhibits sort of were already designed to enhance progression, right? To enhance and entice kids to move on because they were able to master something. It is interesting. Some of the literature that I've read about learning has always been, you know, that idea of like Vygotsky, which is the zone mm-hmm. of proximal um, attainment, which is uh, where if you you can't make the next task so overbearing that you'll quit, but it's got to be enough where you can, for lack of a better word, um, fail, but fail in a way that you can reflect and then move on and 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 then be successful along the way. So um, it's interesting that you say that those exhibits are, would naturally have some component of that in there. But because I have a psychologist uh, here, I, I, now I'm, I'm interested in this next part of that within some of the exhibits there. I've always wondered if you could maybe walk me through what is happening in terms of how arresting visually something like a Rube Goldberg device is for people um, in which is a Rube Goldberg device. And I, I'm almost positive. They still had something like this at the children's museum, which is a very simple action is drawn out. Like, like the little rubber ducky will hit the ball, the ball will fall down the slide and then push the toaster. And then the toaster sends something else kind of in, in motion. What is it? that's happening in the brain that we find that to be so arresting and that we can't keep our eyes off. Cause I think that's something that probably unites um, probably everyone what's happening in our brain at that moment. Definitely. Well, many things. And for children, that type of experience is all the more fascinating. We, well, when I was there, that exhibit was actually upstairs, but they have a much larger scale version of that, a much more complex one, actually at the Museum of Science and Industry downtown in Chicago, um, where we see sort of that chain of events occurrence. um, And in some cases, it can even be manipulated by whoever is engaging with it. But children are now at that age, even if they're young, maybe two and a half or older, perhaps closer to eight or nine, they're not only beginning to understand cause and effect, but they're, they're, they're learning to understand how objects move within the space that they're in. So they're gaining these kinesthetic and vestibular senses, right? They're understanding how gravity works. They're understanding how motion works. They're understanding how velocity works. So when we pair all of those new understandings of what movement is within a defined space with also children being now able to understand cause and effect, it's kind of playing out like a wild version of dominoes. You know, it's it's very, very fun for kids to watch and we want them to be fascinated by it. Uh, I can tell you as a 45-year-old man watching Rupert Goldberg <laughs> uh, effects uh, also it continue to uh, to wow me as well. Mm-hmm. Just, I, your research about the perception of autism and, and, and your thesis that you wrote for that, what were your findings? Definitely. Before I went on to graduate school, I was able to do this independent research project. And specifically, I was examining how we can change people's attitudes towards people with autism. So 
I was trying to manipulate people's attitudes by changing their mood. So we, we know for a fact that when our mood changes, we tend to proceed through the rest of our day being affected by it. So if you watch something that's very sad or you listen to very sad music, we know that affect carries with us. And it tends to have this lasting effect on us and the decisions we make and sort of our, our output towards the situations that we're confronted with. So I was able to present opportunities to put my participants in either a very positive mood or a more sad, almost empathetic mood. And from then, um, I had them go through a series of distractor tasks. So I had them, you know, those where it's like, here's half the shape, draw the other half, just, mm -hmm. just like boring filler tasks. And at the very end, uh, before dismissing them, I said, hey, this is a quick survey from health services about autism. If you have time, fill it out. If not, no big deal. But if you could, that'd be awesome. And people did. And that was the real part where I was collecting data was in that survey. So after manipulating their mood to either something very positive or something that would leave them honestly feeling sorry for other people who were less fortunate in their eyes, they then completed this survey on how do they perceive people with autism? Do they perceive them as smart? Is it someone that they'd openly want to be friends with? Is it someone they'd consider being in a relationship with? Would you help them if they were being picked on? And based on the emotional state that they were in, we saw results that when people are in a positive emotional state, they react in a more friendly and positive way towards people with autism. It was very fascinating. I definitely needed a larger number of participants, but the foundation was there. So, all right. So then you go into the uh, grad school afterwards. Yeah. Now, and now you have a new, now you have a new project. So what, now what <laughs> became the focus for that? So when I, when I went to grad school, I attended, well, I was a little late in the game, actually. Uh, I applied very late. Um, but I attended the Erickson Institute in River North, which is half um, higher education and half an actual institution where they work with families and their children, and they do a lot of advocacy. The school itself specializes in child development. Um, so my master's was in child development. While I was there, I worked on a project that was very similar. I worked within the pediatric department at UIC's medical center at their hospital. And we were specifically studying that, or I should say, the effects of, of mindfulness and how we can increase the positive communication levels between doctors and their patients. So we know the almost caveat of medicine, and if you are practicing anything similar to teaching, you know, you were my Western Civ teacher, but you had so many students. The principle is the same with doctors. Doctors have so many patients, but for their patient, typically that's their only doctor. And it's important that patients feel heard and they feel understood and they feel listened to. And we call that bedside manner. But now that psychology and medicine are really agreeing on many fronts, we're starting to train medical residents in how they can improve their bedside manner and how they can work on ensuring that their patients feel heard and feel listened to. 
So I was able to screen participants in English and Spanish after their doctor visit and ask them flat out, hey, do you feel like you were listened to? Do you think your doctor understands what you're going through? Did they ask you questions that made you feel heard? And the doctors who were receiving this training on how to increase the way that they're mindfully interacting with others had more positive interactions with their patients. It was very cool. And again, it's about changing that dynamic. It's about changing the attitude that we have to create a more warm and welcoming environment. It was really fun. That that sounds incredibly gratifying to be able to see how you were able to break down communication barriers and that led to greater empathy. Uh, And when people are so vulnerable as they are in hospitals, um, what, what, what would you say was the most actionable maybe uh, move that a doctor would say with, with their patient that was most successful? I can tell you. And it's so simple. How is your day going? Hmm. Just asking about the day-to-day. We, we forget as practitioners that parents a lot of time who are working, who have children, who have responsibilities within the household and outside the households, adults don't always get that genuine, hey, how is your day going? How are you? It's quite possible that that doctor's visit where they were asked, hey, how was your day? How are you? Was the first time that that adult or that parent has been asked that all day. And we need those opportunities as social people, as emotional people, right? That's that's who we are. We need those opportunities to share how we're feeling. And we, we also need to feel heard and listened to. So it's really as simple as that, as taking that time to have that basic rapport. That seems like a really natural way to kind of open up to the type of um, advice that you would give in this moment now where we don't have the opportunity to be social. Like, what, mm-hmm. what, do you, what would you say are the types of strategies that we need to do to check in on people that we care about as we are separated from them uh, during uh, this kind of isolation and social distancing and just being mindful of making sure that we don't create those pathogen vectors with people. We have to be separate from people. Um, What are some of the, what would you say are some of the ways that we can be um, allies and, and help people uh, and just check in? What are, what are some of the suggestions that you have for that? Absolutely. I was just having this conversation with my freshman class um, we know that there's so much there's so much value in checking in on those that we're close to. I think with technology now, not only are we isolated, but even our communication is distant, right? We know with with Instagram and with Snapchat, it's it's not as genuine as picking up the phone in a time and day where we can't go hang out, we can't go to the mall, we can't go grab coffee. You know, we're already distanced and we're socially distanced and really taking that opportunity to just text or to pick up the phone and call and say, hey, I've been thinking about you. How are things going? I know it's a crazy time. What's what's new? How are you doing? Um, it's as simple as letting people know that you're thinking about them and taking that opportunity to say it, right? Step up, say, hey, I've been thinking about you. And then listening, listening without providing a lot of I statements listening and just responding, just letting someone feel heard. 
is the best way that we can check in with our friends and family right now. So you finish up your time at um, at the hospital and mm-hmm. this incredible project. So what happens next? So next, that was a project I was I was working on. So while it sounds very fun, it was a lot of crunching numbers, right? That's what research is. Um, fortunately, I was able to start my teaching assistantship. So my entire final year of grad school, I was able to devote to teaching. They let me just teach. So I was able to work for City Colleges of Chicago. First, I taught at Malcolm X City College, which is over on Lake and State Street downtown. And then I was at Harold Washington. Um, Oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, I got those flipped. Uh, Harold Washington is on Lake and State, and Malcolm X is actually right by the United Center, closer to West Loop. And I was teaching within their um, child development departments, so family studies, teacher education, child development. That was my whole final year of grad school. So what was it like to be a young teacher at that level? (laughs) Um. I remember uh, at Malcolm X, I'd have my badge and I'd be going to buzz into the teacher's lounge and an older faculty member would say, excuse me, students have to go check in at the front desk. And I would just show my badge and I'd say, actually, um, I'm going to my I'm going to my desk, you know, back there. Um, I think that so really navigating those relationships with older faculty being perceived as a student, um, yet being faculty and then being able to have this great dynamic with my students who are only a couple years younger than me. I was going to say like, not a lot of, not a lot of gap between you two. No, not at all. And I had some students who were parents and who were older, you know, it's, it's hard to teach parenting to parents. It's hard to teach child development to someone who has children when I don't. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. <laughs> We'd say that's a, a curious type of ethos, you know, to be the professional in the room when someone actually has that kind of life experience to, mm-hmm. to kind of think, well, it, what's, what's reality and what's academic? I could see how that would be a really hard line to kind of uh, negotiate with that. So, you, so then you go from uh, the city colleges and then you were able to then um, roll that into becoming faculty at University of, of Aurora, or, or sorry, Aurora University. How mm-hmm. did that happen? It's quite the process. Uh, Applying for faculty positions takes a long time. I had applied to Aurora as soon as I graduated, as soon as I had that date on my transcript, and they called me a year later. So fortunately, I was able to be at city colleges and stuff, but it it took a very long time. Um, Faculty jobs are very slim, and people are often hired on by specialty, and you once a person lands a full-time uh, faculty position, they really don't leave. Uh, you're usually working towards tenure. Even at a community college setting with a master's, you can obtain tenure. So we know that uh, it's when the openings happen, they are very quick to fill. Fortunately, Aurora needed someone who specialized in development, and I happened to uh, have what they were looking for. But I've 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 loved it. I've from day one. I've if I just knew that this is what I wanted to do. So you, so what are you teaching right now? Right now I'm teaching general psychology, which is just psych 101. And then I'm also teaching child and adolescent development. So that's more of the developmental psychology course that I love. 
So I would ask if you fell into a type of endowment where they said, Allison, here's X amount of money and we're going to give you um, any resource to set up a laboratory to do the type of dream research that you could do. Um, what, what would that be? I know that's a big question, but I'm sure you've kind of thought about like, if you could absolutely pour yourself into your research with, you know, with a absolute blanket of, of resources, what would that be? Oh, that is, that is the million dollar question. Literally. (laughs) Give me a million dollars. (laughs) The million dollar question. And when you're applying for graduate programs and especially PhD programs, doctoral programs, that's what they ask. You know, you're looking to find that funding, to find that fit someone who wants to support your dream research. So, uh, Brian, I can definitely tell you. (laughs) (laughs) I am interested in how we develop emotional language. We know that our ability to have emotional language and to express it is not only something that we learn as we grow up from our parents, from our peers, but it's also very cultural. And we also know that We as individuals throughout all of time have experienced these adverse childhood experiences. This is kind of the hot button topic in the field right now, adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. And what I want to examine is the higher number of adverse experiences. So the more traumas a person has been through, the more neglect, um, the more of these experiences a person has, how does that affect their capacity for emotional language? And we can think about it in the sense of that, you know, age-old tale of Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water, Jack fell down, blah, 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 blah. But the way that we respond to that story, our own expectations about what happens next when Jack and Jill go home and say, hey, mom, you know, Jack, fell down and I fell down and were hurt. We lost the pail, it's in the well. The way that we tell that story, the way that we explain how we're hurt differs from culture to culture. And it differs based on the background that we've had. It's a very complex topic. Yeah, it's complex because then you even have the linguistic layer of that, which is the way in, even the way we understand our reality through the metaphors of our language shape how we perceive it. So that's a whole other layer on top of it. Oh, wow. That would be so (laughs) rich to study. Wow. I'm excited. Someday. Someday. That is so cool. Wow. Well, Allison, this is so great. Uh, And what I normally like to end the interviews with are what would be your tips or your sage advice for current wildcats and how to be successful? All right. My sage advice, and I tell it to my students too, but just ask. Two words, just ask. You're interested in what someone's talking about? Just ask more. You think someone's job is cool? Just ask. Say, hey, can I shadow you? Can you tell me more about this? Send that email. Just like I've had, I saw your podcast with the former student that I knew and I reached out and I said, hey, I saw this. I hope you're doing well. Just ask. Life presents so many opportunities and 
in a lot of ways, just like school, life is what you make of it. And by just asking the questions that you have, you're going to open so many doors. And you'll also recognize that the world is full of really, really good people who want to help you succeed. And they want to share what they know. And they want to bring you along. Um, so that's, that's, my, that's my sage advice, Brian, is just ask. Allison, that was perfect. Uh, I I love that, and it's interesting because I'm as you came onto the uh, onto the ZenCaster here. I was editing a, a a podcast with a former student, and that was exactly their experience was knocking on doors and and just having the capacity and just subtle belief that if I knock on this door, good things might happen, just opened up everything for the students. So I just, mm-hmm. I love that uh, advice that you gave. It's just so spot on. Well, Allison, best of luck. I have a feeling that um, I'm going to, as I'm editing this, I'm going to be so angry with myself that I didn't ask more <laughs> psychology questions. So I might, in a year from now, I might have a follow-up to see what you got, you're studying, and then we'll do another interview because I'll have more. So <laughs> so great. That would, that would be so fun. Thank you so much for having me. I I absolutely love being able to share my experiences and, you know, maybe inspire a couple students along the way or provide them with additional connections. So for sure, I know you will. Definitely. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you want to find past episodes, go to Apple Music Podcasts and search We Go Vox.